Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, that moment where your wife says to you, you're wearing the same clothes as on the video. <laughs> and she's right. I am. Might even be the same tea. I don't know, but... There we go. It's always shocking to see yourself on, on, on video. Um, in, the, um, in the Narnia books, there's a, there's a moment in the line in the Witch and the Wardrobe where everything starts to change. Thor starts to set in. This thing starts to shift. And the line that Mr. Beaver uses is, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And I really feel God is on the move. Something is shifting. Personally, over the last couple of weeks, I have encountered God, the presence of God, more powerfully and tangibly in big settings, in small settings, than I have for a long, long time. Amen. A long time. And you know it's only when you start to drink you realise how thirsty you are. Uh, how desperate I am, was, it am, continue to be for the presence of God. And I think that's all of us. I sense that God is almost putting salt on our lips to make us thirsty for more of him. And when we come to him in longing, he meets with us. And I think that's what he's doing at the moment. And it just feels like he's doing something <laughs> among his people. So I'm really excited. We had a lovely, a wonderful time of encounter this morning in the first meeting. And I trust that will be the same today. So um, some of you are carrying deep grief and God wants to meet you in that. Some of you are carrying deep pain and God wants to meet you in that. Some of you are not carrying those things at all. God wants to meet you. He wants to meet with you. Where you are, how you are. You don't have to pretend. And so today we're coming to another incredible encounter with Jesus in John chapter 11. With the raising of Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> That's quite a big one. So just to give a little bit of context here before we get to the passage, the bit of the passage we're going to read together. Um, Lazarus, Martha and Mary, his sisters, are uh, very dear friends of Jesus. They're not just acquaintances. They really know each other. They love one another. They're very, very close friends. And of course, we meet Martha and Mary elsewhere in Scripture. Lazarus becomes very, very ill. This is all at the beginning of John chapter 11 for those who have their Bibles. Lazarus becomes very ill. Seriously ill, word is sent to Jesus by Martha and Mary to come. Why? Because they've seen Jesus' healing power at work. They, they know Jesus comes, this will be okay. If Jesus comes, he won't die. But Jesus doesn't go straight away. In fact, he stays where he is another two days. And this is totally deliberate. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that Lazarus is going to die. And he also knows what he is going to do. That he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus did loads of miracles in his earthly ministry. More than we see recorded in the Gospels. And particularly here in the Gospel of John. John chooses seven particular miracles to record. He calls them signs. And he arranged them in a particular order. Because what do signs do? They point us to something. And each of these signs that John records shows us something about Jesus. A different aspect of who Jesus is. What he's come to do. They, they, reveal, they reveal Jesus to us. And this is the last of those seven signs. So in a way, it's the climactic sign. It's kind of like John is saying, you, you think you've seen it all with Jesus. You know, you water into wine, healing the lame, healing the blind, multiplying food, feeding 5,000. You think you've seen it all. 
Just wait until you see this. This is going to blow your mind. You just wait till you see this. And I think this is what it's about. I want us to see Jesus today. To see him. To see his glory. So it's not going to be a deep theological dive into this passage. I just want us to see his glory. Encounter his presence today. Because that is what we need more than anything else. Even if we don't know it. See, we often think we know what we need. Jesus knows exactly what we need. He actually knows what we need. You know, it's really interesting. In the beginning of John 11... It explicitly says Jesus loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. He loved them. And yet, he deliberately didn't come straight away when they called. And you might think, we might think, with our standards of what love looks like, you might think, well, that doesn't sound very loving, Jesus. Why, you could have spared them all of this suffering, all this grief through Lazarus, their brother, dying. You could have healed him straight away. You you didn't even have to go. You could have done it from a distance. So how is that loving? He says you love them and yet you, you, you weren't there. Well, maybe we don't really understand the love of Jesus as well as, we think we, as well as we think we do. Jesus says in verse 4, it is for God's glory. This thing that's happening, this is for God's glory so that God's son, Jesus, may be glorified through it. He will be glorified. And then later, verse 40, he's speaking to Martha just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It's about seeing the glory of God. In other words, Jesus is saying nothing is more important for us than seeing God's glory in Jesus, knowing him, knowing him. In John 17, Jesus says eternal life is to know God. It's all about knowing him, about seeing him. His love for us is not about sparing us from suffering and death. And if you're going through suffering, it's not because Jesus suddenly doesn't love you anymore. His love for us is not about giving us health and wealth and comfort. It's about giving us himself. It's all about him and showing us God's glory. If you've been reading with many of us through the Bible in one year, this week we've been looking at Moses and there's that bit where Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. It's an audacious request. I want to see you. Because he knows no one can see God and live. You know, and God allows him to see as much as he can cope with, as much as he can take. He passes before him. And then Moses' face is radiant. It's shining like the sun. So much so he's got to wear a veil so that the people aren't scared of him. This encounter, seeing God's glory, totally transforms even his appearance. But what does the scripture say about us? It says that we, with unveiled faces, unveiled faces, we don't need a veil because we're meant to shine with that brilliance, we with unveiled faces will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So that is really, that's my aim today. It's about seeing God's glory. I want to, I've got a few things I want to say about this passage that we're going to look at, uh, what we see in Jesus, but I kind of want to get out of the way and just see what God wants to do, how he wants to show us his glory. Um, why don't we pray before we, before we look at this? This takes revelation of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you that, you that you sent your Son and you sent your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and open our blind eyes to see you in your glory. Lord, we've seen a glimpse, but we haven't seen anything yet. And so, Lord, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus through these words, through prayer, through worship. Help us to see your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at this in two parts. First, we're going to look at Jesus' interactions 
with uh, Martha and Mary. And then secondly, we're going to look at the miracle itself of raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, so we're going to be reading from verses 17 to 37 first. I'm going to need some help with this. I'm going to ask a couple of people uh, if they can come up to read, preferably male and female. Uh, somebody who's brave and happy to speak through the microphone, read from the screen. Uh, just as you're thinking about that, uh, let me set the context. Jesus now is on his way finally to Bethany, where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus live, and Lazarus has, has clearly died. He's already died. So who's happy? Two people to come and read. Do it quickly, please. Don't leave me hanging. Thank you, Robert. And one, a woman. Becky, come on up. Let's give these guys a round of applause. So you're going to read from, from the screen. Okay, so Robert is going to read from the NIV version, and then Becky's going to read from the message. Just take a seat there. Becky's going to read from the message version. And as we're reading these, just take it in. Think about what do we see about Jesus here? What do we see particularly in his responses to Martha and Mary? And actually, is there a difference we can spot as well? Okay, Robert. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. But Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? That's great. Thank you, Robert. Read with wonderful expression. Okay, so Becky, come up now. I'm going to read this from the message. So again, keep thinking. What do we see in the responses to Martha and to Mary? And actually, particularly in this version, is there something different that we can see? When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away. 
And many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathising with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. He will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am, right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathising Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing, and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Great, thank you so much, Becky. One minute, if you're happy to, talk to the person next to you. What do you notice about Jesus and particularly the response to Martha and Mary? If you don't want to speak to anybody, just keep staring ahead and they'll get the message quickly, all right? But one minute, what do you notice? What do you notice? Okay, I said it would be brief. I said it would be brief. So, who is brave enough to shout out? What do you notice about Jesus' his response to Martha? What do we notice? Weeping. Weeping. Very emotional. Yeah, yeah Jesus' emotions in this passage, are written, and we'll, we'll come to that. What else? Yeah, so that was the difference, wasn't it? So, the, the message used the word he was deeply angry, because actually the word... In the original, it, that's what it means. 
So actually, in this case, the message probably gives us a slightly better idea, but it's a little bit more confusing as well. So we'll pick up on that a bit later. Yes? Anything else? What about the way he responded to Martha and Mary? What was... Yes? Yeah, to Mary. What about Martha? Okay, so this is, this is what I notice, how differently he deals with each of them. They're both grieving. They both come with the same accusation, really. It's the same thing. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And there is that note of accusation in there. It's an understandable response. It's a grief response. They're responding out of their grief. They've lost their brother. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, you know, it's almost you can hear them saying, Lord, don't you care? It's a bit like when the disciples are in the boat with Jesus and the storm comes up and Jesus is asleep in the back. They're scared and they they shake him and say, Lord, don't you care if we're going to drown? You know, it's a fear response for them. For, For Martha and Mary, this is a grief response. They know he cares. Of course they do. They know Jesus. They don't actually think that Jesus doesn't care, but it's, they're raw. They're... They're expressing what they're feeling, but they're saying, Lord, if you've been here, if you have been here, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Why were you not here? When we really, really needed you, why did you not come? And I guess that will be a question, similar questions that you've asked at times of suffering. Jesus responds totally differently to each of them. They, ask, they say the same thing, but he responds differently. With Martha, he confronts her with truth. He comes with truth. He calls her to belief and to hope. He says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I know he will rise at the last day because all Jews believed in the kingdom coming in the future. The power of God would raise the righteous dead to life at the end of the age. So she believed that. Yeah, I know he will rise again at the last day when the kingdom comes. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live and never die. And he says, do you believe this, Martha? He's calling her to belief. He's calling her to believe the truth. He's calling her to hope. Do you believe this? This isn't just about the end of the age. It's about now and who I am right now. Do you believe this? So Jesus' response to Martha is quite, it's actually quite confrontational in one sense. He challenges her with truth. In the face of her grief, he brings her truth. With Mary, he doesn't say any of that. He weeps. He weeps. And as we've seen, there is another strong emotion of anger going on, which we'll come to. But he weeps. And I think there's a whole load of emotions going on here with Jesus. But I think based on what we see of Jesus in the rest of Scripture, even though the primary uh, meaning of the verb that's used is anger, I think it's a fairly safe assumption to think he's he's showing his compassion. Because that is who he is. He heals out of compassion. He sees all the people and they're lost like sheep without a shepherd. He's moved by compassion for them. Jesus is compassionate. He has the deepest compassion of anybody. So I think it's safe to assume that there's compassion here in Jesus' response to Mary, mixed up with all the other emotions. So his response to Martha is truth. His response to Mary is tears and entering into her grief. Why? Well, because Jesus knows exactly what each of them need at that moment. He knows them perfectly. He is. He is the wonderful counsellor. He's the perfect wonderful counsellor who knows exactly what you need. I am not. And none of us are. I guess we're all aware that sometimes we see people in certain situations and you know, they, what they need is to be confronted by truth. You know, we're told to speak the truth in love. We know sometimes that's the right thing. And sometimes they really need comfort and support. 
Or they need both, but they need it in the right order. And when we get it wrong, when we get it the wrong way around, we can, we can harm them. We, don't, we make it worse. And we all have a default as to which one we'll go to. And my default, my wife will confirm this to you, my default is truth. Which means that sometimes I totally lack compassion. It's just like, well, why would you think that? God's word says this. Believe it. That's my default. I think I've got a little bit better. Have I? <laughs> a little bit better at sort of an arm around the shoulder. You know, there, there, there. Now, <laughs> let me, you know, but some, that's the default. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes what somebody needs here, sometimes it does more harm than good. It's not helpful. Other people will default to the kind of the comfort and the sitting with the grief and, you know, never get to truth. That's not actually helpful either. But sometimes it's needed before you come to truth. Only Jesus has the perfect wisdom. Only he has the perfect understanding and he knows exactly what you need in every situation. And it's like to Martha, he reveals himself as God. He doesn't say, I have access to power that can help here. He says, I am the power. I am that power. I am the resurrection and the life. And then to Mary, we see the humanity of Jesus. And the point is, of course, he's both. Perfectly, wonderfully both. Fully God and fully man. We can't understand that, but that's what he is. And he is, because he's fully God and fully man, he is exactly what you need in every circumstance. And so, if that's who he is, we need to let our hearts be drawn to him above everything and everyone else, because he is what we need. We need to let our hearts be drawn to him. We get this out of order so easily in our hearts when we, uh, uh, we put other things above Jesus in our hearts, in our loves, in our affections. We treat Jesus like a bolt-on to our lives, our insurance policy. He's there when I need him. But really, I'm going after this. The thing is, whatever you love more than Jesus, whatever you love more than God, will end up destroying you or you will destroy it. So if I, for example, if I put my wife above Jesus in my affections, in my heart, if I put her above Jesus, it will end up crushing both of us. Because actually, she cannot meet all of my needs and she cannot understand everything about me and I can't do the same for her. It's impossible. No one other than Jesus can bear the sheer weight and significance of somebody else's life. No one else can do that. That applies, by the way, also if you're not married. But for you, maybe the thought of a spouse, the desire for a spouse, carries that same importance and weight. You've just got to be very, very careful if you get married... Very careful that you don't place an unfair, unrealistic expectation on each other for your happiness and your fulfillment. It will not happen. It will crush you. It will crush them. Only Jesus can do it. So we need to put Jesus in that place. He's what we need. But how do we do that? Because the reality is we all know sometimes Jesus doesn't feel very tangible to us. Sometimes we can't really see Jesus. And there's other things which are brighter and shinier and are more attractive than Jesus. And we end up placing them above him. We need to put Jesus in that place. To do that, we need to see him. We need to see him, to look upon the beauty of Jesus, this amazing, beautiful combination of divine and human. He's the only one who knows what it is to be tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. He totally understands your struggles. He absolutely understands. He's been there, and yet he's God. He's the only one in that position who can understand you. He's the one who is both a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is the most joyful person in the universe. Look at him. Look at him. Love him. 
Give yourself to him. He's the only one who is both God and man, lion and the lamb, both high and low, full of power and full of humility. He's the one who invites you to come to him if you're weary and burdened, he will give you rest. It's the only place you'll find true rest. Jesus is incomparably better than you can possibly imagine. You haven't seen anything yet. He is incomparably better than you can possibly imagine. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him. Draw near to him. Love him above everything else. I remember a few years, not a few years, quite many years ago actually, having a really powerful encounter with Jesus. And I, somebody prayed for me. I was on the, I'd fallen down on the floor. I was on the floor, lying there in the presence of God. But what I could see in my mind is just, I know we don't know what the face of Jesus looks like, but I could, it was like I could see the face of Jesus. And in his eyes, just the most indescribable, the most indescribable love. I can see it now. And in that moment, everything changed for me. I already knew him. I was already a Christian. I already said, I want to follow you, Jesus. But in that moment, just the assurance of that salvation, the assurance that I was adopted as a son. I was a son. And the significance that comes with that, the love that comes with that, the acceptance that comes with that. Before it, I knew it in my head. Now, I knew it. Right down, deep down in my heart, I knew it. And I think God wants to do that for some of us today. For us to see him in that way and have that assurance of salvation, that assurance of his love in the midst of our circumstances. Not to change them, but to come alongside. I think he wants to do that for some of us today. Look at Jesus, look at him, the wonderful counsellor. He's the one who knows exactly what you need. Let your heart be drawn to him. Okay, so let's look briefly at the, at the miracle itself. Uh, the, the kind of the centerpiece of this story. I'm going to read this from the message as well, because again, they pick up on this theme of anger, which we noticed before. It says, Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, he arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye, didn't I tell you? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I have spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe with a word I've never said before. A kerchief over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. Can you just imagine it? Just imagine being there. I mean, I've heard stories from, from all over the world about this kind of thing happening. Just imagine, it was astonishing. But what is this anger? It's not what we'd automatically associate with Jesus in these moments. He's weeping. Surely he's he's up because he's upset. What's this anger? Well, we see in the Gospels there are times when Jesus gets angry, you know, and it's righteous anger. You know, he drives the people out, the the, the money lenders out of the temple. It's righteous. We see in Mark's Gospel when the leper comes to him and says, "Lord, if you're willing, make me clean." And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Now, this is in Mark one verse forty-one. Some versions of the Bible say he was indignant. Jesus was indignant. 
Other versions say he had compassion on him. So which one is it? Well, it's both. It's both. Jesus is in, this leper comes. Jesus is indignant, not with the leper. He has compassion on the leper, but it's precisely because of his compassion that he's so angry and indignant at the evil in the world that causes this suffering and sickness and death. That's what his anger is about. In this story, he's not angry at Mary or Martha. His anger arises from his depth of compassion for them and for Lazarus. He's angry at death. He's angry at suffering and the evil behind it, the evil in the world behind it, the enemy that we all have. He's angry at that. Let me just quote from Gentle and Lowly. Some of you have read this, I know, by Dane Ortland. And in this, he quotes a guy called B.B. Warfield, who a long, long time ago wrote a sermon called The Emotional Life of Christ. Amazing, amazing piece of work about what we see in Jesus here, his, his emotions. And he says in here, he describes the, the verb that is used in verses 33 and 38 as profound fury. Not just he's a bit angry. says it really means profound fury, rage. Rage. We don't think of Jesus like this, do we? And it says this, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What do we see in Jesus here? We see he's the one who fights for you. He fights for you. He's furious at the suffering in your life. He's furious at the evil in the world that causes that. He fights for you with a passion and with a fury. He's a warrior who fights for you. He has fought for you and he has won. He has won the victory over the enemy. The enemy lies defeated. He will try. He will try to have his influence, but he's defeated. Jesus fights for you and he's won. How often do we think of him like this? Some of us in here today will be at a decision point about Jesus. Some of you young people who I know are in with us today, some of you will be at a decision point about what you really think about Jesus, how you really see him, what place he has in your life. And I suspect that for some of you, at the moment, you see Jesus more in terms of what he stops you doing than what he gives you. Like there's all these things I kind of am attracted by. There's all these things, temptations in the world around me and I really want to do, but, but with Jesus it feels like I can't, I can't do that. It doesn't feel like much fun. And you, you see him less in terms of freedom, more in terms of constraint. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. He is the one who fights for you, even you. Even you who sits there with all your doubts and questions and do I, do I really love Jesus or is he just someone my parents know? Or it, he fights for you. He fights for you. He looks at you with absolute compassion. He loves you with a burning, passionate love. And he fights for you to know true freedom that is really freedom, which only comes in him. But you've got to see him. You've got to see him. Otherwise, everything else is more attractive. Everything else shines a bit brighter. You've got to see him in his glory. You've got to see his beauty and be drawn to him. And that takes revelation of the Holy Spirit. But he's the one who came to remove suffering and death, ultimately. He's the one who came to conquer evil at the ultimate cost to himself. And this is the biggest part of his beauty, the biggest part of his glory, because Jesus didn't just do it for Lazarus. 
He came to fight for us and die for us. This raising of Lazarus triggers something in the story. Up to this point in John's Gospel, it's been all about revealing Jesus, showing us bits of who Jesus is, just this unfolding picture. But this is the moment that the Jewish leaders decide this guy has to die. Verse 53 says, from that day forward, they plotted to take his life. John's Gospel from this point on is now the journey to the cross. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He chose this. He knew what he was doing. He knew that this would be the result of raising Lazarus from the dead, that that was the trajectory from now on. The only way for him to give Lazarus life was for him to lose his own. He knew what he was doing. The only way to get Lazarus out of the grave was for he himself to go to the grave. Jesus knows the consequences. And I think all of that is wrapped up in the emotions that he shows. I mean, if you think about it, if you were going to a funeral but you knew you had the power to reverse death. And you're about to give these people the shock of their lives by returning their loved one to them. If you knew that, would you be weeping? I don't think so. You'd be like, oh, I can't wait to do this. This is, I hope no one has a heart attack, but oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be a good one. Jesus weeps. He's deeply disturbed. He's deeply moved. This mix of anger, mix of grief, but also I think mixed in there is he knows the cost. He knows what this is going to cost him. The amazing thing is he didn't just do it for Lazarus to give him a temporary reprieve from death. Lazarus is going to die again. He did it for us to give us eternal life. Eternal, forever. We sang about forever, eternal life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, and at the cross, every every stroke of that hammer that drove nails into his hands and his feet, every blow of that hammer brought us freedom. Every wound inflicted on him unjustly brings us healing. His death brings us life. His death frees us from the power of sin. It, 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 he takes our sentence. He takes the judgment that we deserved upon himself into his body, and he gives us new life. He gives us righteousness. He gives us forgiveness and new life. His resurrection defeats death once and for all. It's a done deal. It means we can have eternal life. It ensures that the day is coming when there will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. Everything will be restored and made new for eternity. But Jesus, in this miracle, he is saying that day is now. Yes, a day is coming, but I'm bringing this into the now. I bring that kingdom, that future kingdom of God into the now. He calls us to do the same, by the way. If you're followers of Jesus, he calls us to be bringers of the kingdom today in the now. But he brings this kingdom, this future power, into the now. It's a foretaste of the glory to come. And as he shouts, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus emerges from this tomb, the glory of Jesus is revealed. Can you see it? Have you seen it? Have you ever seen the glory of Jesus. There's such authority in the shout of Jesus. He just has to say it. Such authority in that shout of Jesus as he calls Lazarus' name. But that's how we all got saved. All of us who were born again. That's how you got saved. He called your name. There was a day when, when Jesus said, John, live. And what was dead rose to life. There was a day when he said, Rich, live. And what was dead rose to life. Is he calling your name today? For some of you in here today, you don't know him. Is he calling your name? Today might be the day of salvation and new life for you. It's his glory. 
It's all about his glory, his truth, his love, his compassion, his anger, his fury, his power, his authority, his sacrifice. It's all part of his glory. Can you see it? Can you see it? Do you want to see it? It's when you really see him that you understand that he is the only one worthy of your worship without limits, without restraint. He's the only one. Nothing else can take your worship. Nothing else is worthy of your worship. Look at him. The centre of the universe who gave everything for you. When you see him, you cannot react with indifference. You can't be indifferent to Jesus. You can't treat him like a bolt on. He will not be your bolt on. He will not be your insurance policy. He will not be your consultant. He is everything. Jesus is everything. He is the all in all. He is everything. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is everything in our lives. And he demands and he deserves to be at the very centre of your life. And to be your first love above everything else. And to be your Lord. Look at him. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him today. He says, come to me. Come to me. I've got so much more that I want to show you. Come to me. We've got so much to do together. I've got so many plans for you. You know, when you're with me, if you're truly with me, you will never be weary. You will never be bored. Come to me. Know my love. See my glory.